0: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate.
1: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. We are here today with a special guest host. And if you haven't, uh, if you don't know about this fellow, he was on episode 15 of the Toronto Under Construction podcast, Alex.
2: Maybe give us a little uh,
1: little refresher on, uh, on who you are. Ben,
2: <laughs> thanks for having me. Um, I'm an investor and a partner in a few different real estate businesses uh, in Toronto and Ontario in general. Um, and I'm an avid podcast listener. So nice. Uh, thanks for having <laughs> me as a guest host today. Long time
1: listener, first time co-host. Well, if you are a listener, you'd know that the sponsor of the Toronto Under Construction podcast is BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for top talent. They're a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. So please reach out to them at www.bcgi.ca. And if you're a fan of this podcast, please do, reach out to BCGI. So we have a fantastic uh, guest here today, uh, a man about town, a Torontonian, a New Yorker, a Miamiite. Uh, Why don't you, uh, Alex, why don't you take away the biography here?
2: Sure. Jason is president and a principal at Bow Properties International, a Toronto-based real estate investment development and finance company based in Toronto with additional prime holdings in Ottawa. Calgary, British Columbia, New York City, Los Angeles, and the Bahamas. Since 2002, Jason has focused primarily on the organization's new acquisition and development activities in addition to overseeing all property and asset management for the company's portfolio. Prior to joining Bo, Jason helped create and manage a private commercial mortgage fund, and he was a practicing attorney at the New York firm of (laughs) Cadwallader, (laughs) Wickersham, and Taft. Jason is admitted to bar in New York State and also holds a Master's of Laws from Fordham University, a Master's of Science in Real Estate from New York University, and a BA from Western. He has served on several boards, including a children's charity and a healthcare data company. Welcome to the show, Jason
0: Birnbaum. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It's a long intro, and it makes me recall some of my youth. So how do you, how do you
1: say, your? I, I was reluctant to say your last name. How do you pronounce your last that,
0: name? Uh, well, my limited uh, family members, because we're a small clan, typically we say Burnboim. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. We
1: stick to it. That's totally off. Wow, of I would have pronounced yeah, That's what I tell it, so. my kids who are
0: now <laughs> old enough to ask. <laughs>
1: All right, so tell us a little bit more. We got a little bit of a, a flavor from uh, from your your backstory. You've got multiple degrees from Canadian and American universities. You were a lawyer on Wall Street. You know, tell us uh, tell us about uh, your journey.
0: I was, and and you know that was a journey and uh, leading to this destination. I suppose it's uh, again a pleasure to be here with you guys today. I I think, um, ultimately, um, the, my family's been in, in the multi-res apartment game for really decades, like since before I was born and that was always in my blood. Um, but growing up in that environment, it didn't always appear that stable. So I was sort of pushed towards that, um, uh, career and, you know, uh, to, to have a professional designation and, and ultimately uh, led me to, to pursue law and practice law. And, uh, you know, certain opportunities led me to New York City, which was really amazing, especially when you're really young. So I, you know, completed my law degree there and then was very fortunate to find a position at a, a big firm doing, um, of all things, real estate finance. And uh, maybe I just talked my way into the position. Not not quite sure I was qualified, but <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I was there a couple of years, worked really hard, very, very steep learning curve. And, uh, you know, it was a good pivot point because at that point we had a... Um, Asian credit crisis, I think, that slowed things down a bit. At the firm, so I fe- felt it was a good opportunity to exit and uh, get into uh, a little bit more formal training in, in real estate finance. Because, because what I knew from that point was what I absorbed as a you know youth and child from my my household, my family, uh, my father primarily. So that was great. I went to NYU, and then um, you know was at that inflection point. Do I stay in New York, and do I really start? climbing that ladder of uh, the business world, which really is never ending? Uh, or, or do I pivot and head back to Toronto where, um, you know, there should be uh, fun opportunities and ultimately maybe a place in the family company for me? And that's what I did. So I came back here and uh, really haven't looked back. It's been uh, over 20 years. Uh, again, I, I was involved with a great mortgage company. Uh, I was small and growing at the time and had a, uh, a, a short stint there and then ultimately just found, uh, opportunity to work really with my father and our family business. And uh, it's grown since then. We, we pivoted into uh, a little bit of commercial investment and development, primarily through partnerships, a little bit on our own. And uh, along the way, continued to, you know, add to and enhance our multi-res um, portfolio and platform and uh, branched out into other markets. Uh, where we, ultimately we, you know, we got more comfortable with with uh, owning assets outside of the core with uh, the core multi res with with the right strategic partnerships. Nice. Hope that wasn't too much of a mouthful. <laughs> no, that was
2: good. <laughs> During your time in New York City, were you active in the development of some of the portfolio in in that market? Did you handle the acquisitions and what was that experience like? Sort of operating in.
0: You know, it it. Um paralleled uh, my, my legal career a little bit. And, and uh, at the time, my, my dad, who was you know, very much uh, entrepreneurial as, as an investor, was uh, exploring the acquisition actually of a, of a couple of hotels, one in Manhattan and ultimately one in Chicago. Uh, we sort of flipped out of the Manhattan one, but it was, it was under contract for a couple of years. Uh, so, that, so that was kind of fun. Um, we didn't look at multi-res at the time. In fact, one of the first things I did when I landed in New York in 94, you know as, as a pretty young guy, was, was call up some resi brokers and say, hey, guys, uh, you know, what's doing in New York multi-res? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> what, you want to be a pioneer? You can, in those days, you'd invest down the Lower East Side. Uh, this, at that point in the mid-90s, I guess, you know, when New York was recovering from a, maybe a, a rough uh, decade before or decade plus. So things were still gentrifying, but pretty rapidly. And there still were opportunities in Manhattan, I suppose. But everything was just super, super expensive. My, my dad could not get over the just price per door. Uh, leaving aside the yield and, and everything else. So in retrospect I think everything would have been fantastic like most multi res investments it's in all in relative, urban areas, right? <laughs> right? If, I can tell if you your that
2: benchmark is analyzing Toronto at the time then New York City and other global sort of major markets would seem astronomical, but but in the context of history and you know, the it's easier to look backwards when from the present and realize like it relatively it was expensive, but it still had a lot of room to run. And probably that'll be the case in 20 years from now. Right. When you're looking back on markets like Toronto and in New York where people feel it's expensive, but it is really relative.
0: That's right. It is exactly right. It's relative. And, but you know, one thing we learned and again, you know coming from not a large organization which was a little smaller than even um and family you know family oriented with with uh you know certain strategic long-term partners um the, the reality is it's really hard to compete in a foreign market without local presence in my mind you, you're really just shark bait and of all places in the world new york uh i mean you know you're shark bait anywhere you know toledo ohio i'm sure the local guys know a hell of a lot more than we do about their market but uh, in new york they'll eat you alive and they won't feel bad about it either. So, you know, we learned that real quick, uh, in, in our experience. But, um, so ultimately, um, you know, we, we sort of found our path there, but, um, yeah, I mean, I was really young and and I had negotiated actually a joint venture for what ultimately was the hotel we acquired in Chicago with, um, you know, my first JV and and an exciting opportunity, but we had uh, a REIT and uh, a pension fund as a partner, uh, in, in a prime Chicago asset that that we were real proud to be a part of. Uh, we exited after only a couple of years. Uh, the JV bought us out. Um, they were a little too aggressive on their um, um, projections and assumptions and we we thought there was already an in inherent value so they you know they gave us a nice lift and we put the deal together and a promote for that so that was kind of fun but um, you know it became an institutional type play and it just didn't work for us and I never really repriced the asset but every time I've been back in Chicago which hasn't been a lot but you know I'm, I you know I look back so fondly with those memories of that deal but I also you know believe that you know we we really it's not that we time the market per se but that market is not as far as i could tell kept up with you know toronto or it's got some challenges cool well. yeah, yeah really yeah. we we we've, we've lapped chicago in
1: terms of in terms of population so but let's let's go back maybe a few years your your i believe your grandfather started this company in manitoba and then ultimately the grandparents
0: moved. actually uh, grandmother grandparents. as well yeah okay
1: and then you ultimately moved to ontario so what was the uh, I guess the grand thesis of your, your grandfather and from moving the business to from Manitoba to, to Ontario.
0: I mean, sure. It's again, the immigrant mentality, um, I think, you know, my grandparents, my dad's parents were, uh, were immigrants uh, from, from Eastern Europe and my mom's were as well, but they had longer history here. Um, you, you know, they, they were scrappy. You know, they would, they would uh, really buy properties, improve them, turn them around, sell them for cash and, and, uh, and cash flow. And, and that was the strategy and really anything to, to get further ahead. Um, my dad had the vision, I suppose, when, when he, um, uh, I guess, to join them. When my, my grandmother um, was, was, it was ill, she, she had health problems uh, earlier in life. And, uh, he, you know, he sort of took the reins. And he was doing an MBA at Western, came back to um, Winnipeg to, to assist them. And uh, from there, they, they ended up building an apartment building in Winnipeg. And then I think in the late 70s, Um, They, they, you know, my dad saw this as sort of an opportunity to um, really grow and and thought that that Winnipeg was probably more stable than he was hoping for his career. It was pretty, very young at the time, but so he he looked westwards to Vancouver or here. Uh, I don't think he ever really seriously considered Calgary, but we had family in Vancouver. And he said, you know, Toronto is the place to be. It's diversified. Um, it wasn't reliant on one industry like a Calgary. And it seemed to be growing. Although he could tell you and looking back in the archives, right, I think Montreal was still the number one city in Canada at the time. Wow. Um, and it's, and that's sort of how I recall. It. Like Toronto was still pretty provincial um, when we came here as, as, and I was a kid in the 78. So, you know, but Toronto, really, the trajectory was almost straight up from the late 70s up until, you know, 1990, I'll say, maybe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, my dad was a trader um, uh, of assets. A uh, trader, not a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's a spy? <laughs> the most loyal man in life. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, again, really fortunate to be, uh, exposed to that as a child. And, but again, you know, we, we saw a, a him as entrepreneurial operator, um, running a lean ship, you know, talk about work from home. He worked from home and, uh, until he got his business up and running and, uh, probably a few years even in Toronto and then he ended up sharing off space with lawyers and you know ultimately we grew into a, a bigger operation. But um, yeah, it was there was a lot of inflation in Toronto in in, in real estate in the late seventies, early eighties. And so he flipped a bunch of stuff. I remember him telling me he bought a building uh, I think it was in Scarborough and within a year he flipped it for a million dollars. And you know, the early eighties is a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. not that it's not today. So but he slowed, you know, he sort of settled down. I think our sort of um, premier acquisition or landmark for us was at Young and Egg um, 66 Broadway and that was 1984. And almost from that point in the multi-res space, we really haven't sold anything. So we, you know, continue to add and uh, where it made sense strategically and and just sort of grew from there. Um, so I was you know had first hand exposure to all that stuff.
2: As a trader, I mean you referenced he was obviously buying and selling in quick succession and was he adding value to to the properties during that time or was it really just through renewals and sort of turnover, you were able to achieve rents going up and also, I guess, maybe cap rate compression or whatever it may be, the rising tide, just getting them out of these things. Like, Was there an active platform to create value, or was it really just opportunistic
0: buying? It was opportunistic and it was really taking advantage or, or using as a, really an arbitrage the rent control legislation at the time, which allowed you to pass through a lot more of the costs, including mortgage interest uh, and, and other things. But it, uh, it rent control or the apartment sector, the multi-rest sector at the time um, you know in the 80s was was badly damaged uh, first of all what was in vogue ironically today was office buildings uh, people were building them people were buying them they've been trading them and it was just the hottest sector right and the biggest guys were doing it they didn't want apartments because of rent control which had recently come in I don't know the exact timing but uh, it was after a uh, there's a famous and anyone listening should Google it there was an apartment flip involving uh, the Cadillac Fairview portfolio uh, where some um, some nameless buyers from, I believe, the Middle East uh, were, were party to a massive transaction that turned out to be fraudulent. And a bunch of trust companies were involved. And, and uh, it was all contingent on, um, you know, massive rental appreciation, uh, rent appreciation, which was, of course, politically untenable. So ultimately, it led to rent control. And it was a conservative government ironically that brought it in so a lot of the people who had built the stock then that most of the stock the multi-res the murbs uh from the 60s i think they felt they got burned because you know now they had to deal with rent control and and it was pretty pretty harsh so my dad was opportunistic saw this as hey you know what i can buy these buildings and, and i believe i can run them uh lean and then over a short term get the rents up but not through necessarily repositioning because that wasn't the game. It was more li- literally just passing through, um, the, you know, the, uh, General management ultimately. Essentially. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't capital intensive like it would be today and the buildings were newer, et cetera. So fortunately was ultimately successful. Uh, I know that he was, that, you know, he was telling me there were certain buildings he bought that he projected he was going to lose a half a million a year for a couple of years before the plan came into effect as a small operator in those days, you know, picture the dollars, right. They were significant. So, you know, he didn't see it as a risk because, you know, he he had real good vision and and cash flow management. And, you know, as an arbitrage, you won't find those opportunities. Uh, I, I, you know, I would say uh, they're certainly not uh, widely available and uh, they're few and far between.
1: I, I pulled a quote from an article where you said this. You said, when buying in dense, high barrier to entry markets, high rise rental apartment buildings are one of the safest investments around. Uh, do you still feel that way? And, and why would you still feel that way?
0: It's a great question. And, and you know, I've been fortunate to do a little bit of, of media Uh, over the you know my career and it's it's partly just you know to get the synaptic uh, nerves running in my brain also anyone listening you know we love partners and partnerships and joint ventures Uh, we don't (laughs) typically bring in investors on deals but sometimes but um, you know thinking back yeah I mean I would have believed that sentence pretty much my entire life, except for the COVID period, (laughs) Um, which, you know, to varying degrees would have run anywhere from a few months to two years, Uh, you know, literally and figuratively. I I mean, I I was rocked by the um, enormous out-migration from first-hand Toronto and what I heard from, you know, partners and friends in New York and read in, in, in other markets and partner in LA, uh, it was shocking. And, and then you really call into question what the existential purpose of a big urban environment. But I did say to friends and anyone that would listen, you know, this is going to reverse uh, very quickly. Your people are going to um, that are fleeing the city or fleeing out of a panic scenario and they're going to return because we have the infrastructure here, uh, namely the hospitals, but universities and, and you know, just the, you know, the amenities that, that make Toronto, to me, the, the center of the country, at least. So I, I do believe that. But, you know, politics and regulation have, have thrown a... Uh, tremendous, um, wrench in, in, in that concept and so many more so in America, but really everywhere. I mean, it's, they, they make it very difficult for cities to thrive. I think they sort of stand in the way of progress, stand in the way of development through heavy regulation and, and let's just call it political factors. So I still, I still believe that, that, that will be the trend because, you know, with, with, um, climate change and, and policies for for greener and more energy efficient land use uh you know cities are are very much um the place to be and and i think certainly the youth want to be in cities and urban environments but um you know it's it's not it's not something you can rely on to the same extent in my mind after covid yeah
2: that's interesting it's interesting awesome nice yeah I think the um the perspective around the safety of of the asset class is um, is potentially only vulnerable for the shorter term outlook. I think if you just look at trends from an immigration standpoint and ultimately where the majority of the people who come into the country end up, eventually even all the office stock in my opinion I mean we've got a, we have an office business and we're very active on co-working and shared office space um, and so there's a total change in how demand is using it but we're certainly believers that over time Toronto is going to continue to be Toronto in a very active economic engine and everything's going to fill back up. Um, Do you think that land use policy changes and some of the political momentum around sort of opening up the neighbourhood zones, the yellow belts as they call it, freeing up hopefully some additional land for supply and accessibility for a smaller and medium-sized investor is going to make a meaningful difference? And also do you foresee some sort of Enhancement and zoning from a high rise and mid rise standpoint that makes more sites open for uh, significant intensification such that it makes a difference to the safety of uh, and the sort of moat around a high rise rental building once it's up and running?
0: Well, it's another great question. The barriers to entry are massive in, in clearly Toronto. You know, someone I know uh, who is performing a uh, multi res building today was telling me you know 700,000 plus per unit you know I mean that's uh, on a rough basis so I mean you know which would make sense you know I don't think that included land mm-hmm. right so I mean you know if <laughs> I don't know the exact details but um, I, I could tell you this that um, you know the, the housing stock that we own apartment buildings um, you know we're providing um, um, essentially you know mid-range lower priced rentals to the masses. Uh, I sell to the masses, not the classes, is my tagline. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we should be given the red carpet treatment, um, you know, not villainized like like the press and media do because we're the ones that are are taking care of of that housing stock and it's and it is taking care and it takes a lot of effort because it's aging and deteriorating so in that sense regulation is working against us and I think some of the mayoral candidates have vocally uh, expressed you know what I think are concerning uh, undertones of of more regulation it's not going to be the uh, provincial rent control I don't think because they don't have that jurisdiction but more regulation is bad for the market but but that said on you know yellow belts and and um, uh, you know opening up the duplexes and triplexes in residential neighborhoods, I, I think it'll make an incremental difference. I think that it just the numbers to get something off the ground don't work to go buy a house, tear it down for what land costs, and then build two, three, four units. I don't see how you can do that in uh, anywhere but the fringe. Um, now if you have a underutilized house, can you, can you, or laneway, you know, can you add a a duplex in the back? I know people doing that and, and that maybe there's an argument, but otherwise I think it's just, uh, uh, you, you know, and it's a it's a cute thing the city council's doing with probably not a lot of consultation to make it seem like they're they're d- dealing with the problem. But but personally, I could tell you. And, and again, I haven't gone to uh, council to rezone anything in the last couple of years, but I have a lot of things in the in, you know, in the pipeline. And, uh, you know, eventually you do get if, if you're pro forma with, you know, backing up to your investor base is let's buy it you got to go Let's buy this property rezone it sell it build it you got to move at the speed of light to get a decent return if you're like me and you have those sort of uh sites in the background um that are you know intensification or you know existing land then i can do things a lot more calmly and smoothly and so i i just sort of pick my um windows of opportunities so to me that all that being said I, I see personally, and, and you know, I, I, was, I was saying, Ben, I pulled up an article, the, the most recent uh, you know, where are we? 2,360 condos were sold in Q1. I mean, 74% down. I was impressed it was that high from what I'm reading. But to me, the issue is not zoning more units. Every, it seems as though every week I'm reading that, you know, in the Mir- is it Miracle Mile in Scarborough, uh, uh, Golden Mile. 5,000 units here, you know, in Markham, this shopping center is rolling for 2,000. To me, if you add all that up, you have more people than will ever set foot in this city. Uh, or this, or this jurisdiction. I think there's plenty of sites, shopping centers, especially. I have a few that that maybe are conducive to that. I, I think the issue is is you know catch the market catching up um, that can afford to pay what it costs to build today, which you know let's face it is is astronomical. So it's the market. It's you know getting more people in the city, in my opinion, that can afford, and and it's the construction um, schedule, people being able to to build these you know complicated buildings. That to me is a bigger issue than the barriers. At City Hall. That being said, it should be faster, but I don't think that's what's the impediment today. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I would as a if if I was a developer with, with a busy office of staff, I, I I would be extremely nervous right now.
1: You know, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's certainly interesting. I mean, obviously, I I do a lot of underwriting of uh, of deals, and uh, you know, and part of that is comparing the the price of a new condominium to a. Reasonably acceptable resale comparable. So mm-hmm. something that's not 25 years old, but right. something that's less than 10 years old. So I was uh, underwriting a deal at, uh, in and around the Bathurst and Spadina area. So Great there's spot. an existing condominium there called B Streets well, condominiums. They run,
0: they run uh, parallel B uh, Streets, Bathurst and Bloor. Yes. I used yeah. to the, I know that because I own the building right Sorry. next door. Yeah. Yeah. Got, got the wrong street. I'm yeah. glad you're here,
1: so you correct me. But anyways, B3 condos, like the, the, the resale values in there over the last year are about 980 bucks a foot.
0: Okay. Right? Across from Juan right?
1: And so if you start looking at several of the kind of smaller condominiums that have been uh, been brought on the market recently, some of them are like 13, 1400 bucks a foot. It's a $500 per square foot delta. <laughs> 450 delta, delta above what someone could get in the resale market, right? And because costs have been pushed up, right? There's, you know, I I, I keep telling this as, as many people that will listen, cost push inflation. This is something you'd learn in well, when there was grade 13, Basic grade economics. 13 economics, yeah. right? Costs go up, you either stop building and you don't build that or you pass those costs on to purchasers, right? And we're getting to the point where we can no longer pass those costs off to purchasers because those purchasers investors and those investors look at the resale market and go, okay, this, this, the price of this unit needs to go up, uh, or the the resale market needs to improve by eight to 10% a year during this pre-construction to completion period. And those numbers stop making sense. Right? So it's a, it's an interesting point in our history where we may not get anywhere near the supply that we uh, that we need to get right, and uh, and it actually leads me into I actually do have a question on this. So part of that, obviously, part of that inflation is is interest rates, and and Ferpo actually came out with a with a stat, and I'm curious if you you saw that. So so Ferpo, the federal rental providers I of Ontario, fair rental actually fair. Sure. <laughs> Fair. Rental <laughs> My totally dad used to be on the board years ago. <laughs> so. totally screwed that up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is fair. Um, so it says that rental housing providers selling their, uh, selling their properties due to financial stress has increased 300% year over year. Don't know how they, they calculated that, but, you know. Sure, from one uh, to do three. You, <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you believe that stat? And, and, and I guess how, how much of a negative has higher uh, interest rates been on your business?
0: Great question. Again, I mean, I, I've read a lot of that anecdotally in, in uh, or not anecdotally, statistically in, in the States. Um, tremendous because you had you know these, these huge merchant um, investor funds that, that were aggressively acquiring, opportunistically acquiring to, to do just that. Borrow short term, reposition the building through um, aggressive renovation programs, get the rents up, refi out, boom, make some money, return the profits to your investors. Uh, I, I have a partner in L.A., that wasn't necessarily their strategy, but um, that's, that's essentially how it worked through the better part of last decade. Um, but then, you know, our interest rates. But guess what? You know, interest rates were either uh, stable or going down for so long. And now that they've reversed, that you can't do that, right? That is not my strategy, never been. Um, sure, we've taken risk, but that, thats not a risk that I, that I would ever underwrite. Um, I could see why people would do it because that's how you can, you know, ena- enable uh, your, your IRR return that you promised your investors. Uh, I don't—I don't look at things that way. Uh, partly because of our structure, partly because of our mindset and outlook on real estate in general is more of a longer term investment that is a good inflation hedge, I think. Uh, And and again, in in certain markets like Toronto, over time, a great inflation hedge, not to say that leverage isn't an important component of of an investment. But if, if you're doing it to the point where, you know, the cost of money shot up 400 basis points and now you're underwater or you need a capital call from your investors, you know, maybe your pro forma wasn't that great to begin with. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I don't know the stat, but I, I suspect it, it went from, you know, if it tripled, it went from five to 15 or, or two <laughs> to six, or I, I have seen a couple of deals where it seems to me that that is what's happening, but the brokerage community is not clearly marketing it that way.
1: Yeah. Um, so you don't know for sure of any of these, these uh, apartment deals that have come by your desk have been distressed or you know.
0: There's a few that I th- that I feel that smell like that, um, but you know it, it's uh, people. You know things take a lot longer than you think. So when interest rates s- skyrocket, you think, oh my God, uh, homeowners are going to be under distress. Well, you know everyone's going to hang on to that asset, their equity as as tightly as they possibly can ho- until the last minute. Yeah. So you know you, what you're going to do is you, you know you're going to tell your lender, I'm going to sell the property. So if you can't get your price or can't get them out, then the lender's going to come in. So in in my world, and I certainly don't. See see every uh, deal in Ontario but I see quite a few and I bet you I see almost every deal uh, that's on the market in Toronto uh, haven't seen that yet but there's a couple as I say that I I suspect have that flavor and it's not surprising at all
2: yeah I was gonna actually uh, ask about the Bahamas so in the CV there's a reference to some assets down there what's what brought you there what, uh, sure. what are you guys up to down there
0: uh, you know that that was my dad's um, Concept, I suppose uh, there was some vision there on an on out island that someone had uh, turned them on to a long time ago. And it was there was going to be a development there that we were going to just participate in. Um, but it was fun to have that exposure and get to know the market a little bit. But it's really it's something you have to have local expertise on. So we were, we we're actually in the process of, of disposing of the land we have there um, to actually to someone that very likely will eventually put together that plan. Um, it's very difficult to transact it all in that market, in my opinion, but, um, you know, some, something to leave to the locals. Hmm. Fun, in the, fun, fun place to visit, though. I was actually just there in March.
2: Yeah, beautiful spot. Um,
1: I guess I wanted to get into, uh, you had said, and again, from that same article, that every month you know how much cash is coming in and you can control cash flow. Uh, while, while it is not quite as liquid as cash financing is robust for these assets and you can find a buyer even during market interruption. So that's kind of interesting uh, comment, but it brought, brought me to, to the, you know, one of the other things that you guys do where it says on your, your website that, um, you provide first mortgage loans, mezzanine loans, preferred equity financing, you know, tell us a little bit about that side of the business. Are you active in that? Or that's just a, a smaller portion of the business.
0: Yeah, it very much is smaller, although when rates skyrocketed and, and the market took a pause, we um, and you know we thought long and hard about expanding it. Um, it was pri- it's primarily at this point through a partner we have in New York City uh, or sorry the New York area. We're, that we've been doing a bunch of deals with for the last decade plus and you know it's their fund really that we participate in but with uh, sort of an added uh, uh, tweak to it that that works for us from um, from a security and structuring perspective I, you know I think it's ama- those deals are amazing and, um, and 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 you know the yield is is very uh, attractive generally relative to the security so we thought even here about expanding it um, and also it's there's there's tax advantages to do you know to structuring things differently I think the challenge in that market is just to continuously redeploy your capital, right? So even if you're getting a higher yield, you're paying a higher tax no matter what on it, and, and then you just got to continuously redeploy it. But, but I think opportunistically it's interesting. Um, you know, what, what I've been reading is, and, and not experiencing, but, but hearing about um, be, beyond uh, the media is, you know, tremendous disruption here in that space. It's almost like every day there's, there's somebody that sort of blows up. Um, I haven't, I haven't heard of any deals that, that really, honestly, I would have done. I guess our, our specialty has been more, um, situational, uh, you know, where it's a bridge or, um, or it's an asset that we really like. So if whatever the price is and backs out per door or per foot, we did an industrial deal in Florida. We're like, all right, this is an asset we would own if we had to. And We've never been in that situation where we've had to reclaim anything or even attempt to. Um, primarily because of the partnerships we've had. But whenever I've done it sort of solo, it ends up taking a lot more time as well. So I really love working with people in that space and thought many times about capitalizing an entity for that purpose. So um, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I don't think, I think the market, I think there's a lot of players in the market. I'm not sure it's necessarily being well served, but uh, right now, you know, financial services, banks, et cetera, seem to be going through an upheaval. So um, you so know, maybe
1: more opportunities to, to
0: jump in. I would think so.
1: Um, I did want to ask you about, a, about a project and speaking of you saying you'd never taken anything back, um, it's, uh, I saw that you purchased a commercial property at 33 Laird yes. in 2017 for eight million. It seems like there are some uh, issues with heritage there, some financing issues. I'm not sure how much you can talk about, but I know we we like to talk about the warts sometime in in uh, in our in our business. What what happened with that site, and uh, you know what kind
0: of went wrong with it? Sure, it's a great example of that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, I think that's a triple A location for some sort of commercial development, Um, ideally for residential. But, you know, you talk about, Alex, the zoning and the city. I mean, it's commercial. uh, It's commercial on one side of the street and residential on the other. Why? I don't know. It's like arbitrary. makes no sense. And it's hundreds of meters to the new Edlington subway. Yeah. That didn't affect us because it was never our, our model, but it sh- surely would make a lot more sense to have res down that that pathway, right? Especially when when that's the, the border. Uh, I know to want you know to some extent they want to preserve employment in that area, but um, you know you can have a hybrid today. You know employment is in a, in residential now. So uh, from our perspective, we we had a, a partnership um, to acquire it. The partnership um, dissolved kind of midstream, so that was really what we ended up exiting it. A couple of years ago, twenty, I think around 2021, and you know we sold it for a lot more than, than than we acquired it for. It was a very attractive location and asset. So, but what went wrong? I think uh, the heritage was a certainly a hiccup, but we got through that, and it was a complicated build. And really, it was it was intended to be pure retail, and the retail market went through an upheaval, particularly through COVID. So, you know, we figured it's time to take an exit, and that's what we did. Um, you know, it, COVID was was dramatic for. I guess all asset classes, not not multi-res for very long, but it certainly felt like it. Um, so in, in that instance, yeah, I mean, uh, half the tenants that we had signed up probably wouldn't have been able to open for business until this year or so. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Last year for sure. So, you know, that that was really the play. And, and, and you know, the, the buyers of Solid Company, and I'm sure they'll make good use of it, but yeah, it, it does appear that it's it's not going anywhere at the moment. So <laughs> That's, I don't know, commercials it, like that. It's it's interesting,
1: the whole preserving and. So we there's a battle, and it's probably going back 10 years in the Leslieville area, so not far from here sure. along uh, Eastern Avenue where there's supposed to be big box and everyone put the signs on their lawn, no big box in Leslieville. It's going to destroy the, the, the small-scale retail character, and we want high-paying jobs in that neighborhood. So here we are 10, 12, 13, maybe 15 years later it's still just sitting vacant so <laughs> there's no not even the low-paying Walmart jobs uh, there and it just I, I, it always just blows my mind that that people think that we're gonna get all these massively high-paying jobs <laughs> in these places and then two, that we should control where people can shop Right. If someone is poor and they want to shop at Walmart or they just love the Walmart brands, then I think they should have the opportunity to shop there, right? Absolutely.
0: And, you know, I I had the smallest involvement with that if you're talking about the Walmart site. yeah. Again, 20 years ago when I was at that mortgage company, because we were looking at giving them a mortgage. We didn't ultimately because there was an environmental issue that they uh, creatively solved. And it was a film studio, if I recall. It was yeah. Making a lot of money as a film studio. But yeah. in those days, you know, you, you, you couldn't overcome those uh, barriers that easily. But I remember, so ultimately, yeah, it was sold as, as Walmart. And, and I think they put on their their big uh, push to get it approved in there. I remember if we are talking on the same site that resistance and thinking it's ridiculous. you're in Toronto like you know Leslieville is, is beautiful a long strip, so many properties such a, a good feel. If they have one Walmart there is' not going to do anything but I had jobs and construction but I, I don't know if it was the demographics or they couldn't get staff which couldn't wouldn't surprise me. I'm not sure, but as you said, they pulled out. So it's, you know, it's, it's testament to what you said earlier, you know, the, why are, why are things expensive? Because the costs to build are expensive. The the developer makes his margin, but it's, it's not, you know, you see a project finish, developer isn't necessarily minting cash out of every deal. So. Uh, yeah, it, it is bizarre that it would go that way, and that after all this time, right? But you know, the city chases the That's Toronto. It's gotten too big. It chases away, in my opinion, industry and business the same way New York chased away Amazon. They said we don't want fifty thousand jobs in in New York City. Go somewhere else. I mean, yeah. that to me makes no sense. Yeah. You know, they were and they weren't all uh, lower paying jobs by any measure. So,
2: yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was wondering your thoughts, given your residential investment experience, on sort of co-living and, and uh, you know, there's a reference in the notes to an article you shared around a lot more people living alone and obviously living longer periods of time as single uh, individuals. Um, and so, you know, in light of that, what is your take on more sort of compact urban living um, and how, if, if at all, are you adjusting your portfolio to sort of suit that trend?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's interesting, and I I remember a few years back being at a uh, a party on Spadina and was talking to someone who was doing one of the co living. Um, businesses out of Brooklyn. I'm trying to remember the which one. It wasn't WeWorks. There was another one. Um, it was pretty interesting in talking to them about it. You know, I think like anything. It, to me, when I look, and again, this maybe this is a function of of me being around this business so many years now, or decades, and my age, but and seeing cycles. But even even as you as you referenced Ben, um, you know, interest rates uh, punishing borrowers now. Everything to me, for the most part, comes down to the price, and I, I, I don't know that sort of. Uh, uh, flipping to say, but um, you, you know, so many things work if you don't have too much debt on them. And and that's what's really occurred. There's too much debt on a lot of assets, so the borrowers can't service it. But they operate, they work well. When it comes to co-living, what I had seen It just, the numbers just didn't work or the the assumptions were, to me, the assumptions were just way too aggressive, um, at least in the new build form. And I'm not to suggest that it's not working somewhere and people aren't making money, but it also becomes more, you know, of a transient, as my dad always says, you know, a hotel's a business, an apartment's an investment, right? So it's true. So a co-living to me is a business. Um, now you may have operators that that know it uh, backwards and forwards and and it's easy for them to run. but but you you know you got to sell constantly like I, I you know I don't really have to i at this point I still have uh, probably the quasi waiting lists for buildings, like not as, as much as you had back in the day, but there's, you know, strong demand and that makes it a lot easier. So, and, and our model sort of, you know, relies on, on a steady stream of demand. But I, I, you know, I, I think that that works, especially in the younger generation. I think it's ultimately sort of quasi students or students that graduated and still want to hang out together. But I don't know. I mean, uh, again, maybe showing my generation or, um, uh, my position by you know when i graduated or at least high school and college like i all i wanted to do was live alone you know or <laughs> with a girlfriend or something right like i if i could afford i didn't want a roommate now obviously and, and it seems to me a lot of the co-living is so expensive that it's is almost as much as as having uh you know your own place but with really cool amenities right <laughs> so but but it all backs down to like you know uh, you, you may get into it but uh, a little later but when we talk about the n- new rental construction a uh, new rental construction is great but to me I just don't see how the numbers work because I don't think the rents are high enough so that's interesting uh, we'll same let, idea
1: let's talk about a project there where I'm sure the numbers did work uh, mm-hmm. probably probably one of your most high profile projects you partnered with uh, Tridel at 101 Erskine maybe tell us a little bit about that partnership and how was the how was the how was the
0: deal structured Sure. Well, that's great. I, I was, I was actually in a meeting with someone a couple weeks ago who doesn't live there anymore, but did uh, not long ago and comp- gave me one of the biggest compliments. He says, you know, the nicest building he's ever lived in. And, and you know, I, I, I was a partner with Tridel. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I would say my, my vision and their execution. Um, so, you know, I, I they, they were very much driving the bus, but I, I signed every check and still do to, to this day to get the warranty money back. Um <laughs> you know it was surplus land um, like we have on some other sites that we essentially just rolled into a JV with them um, but it was extremely complicated because we have a prized building next door that's rather large that we wanted to enhance and maintain obviously and uh, th- that we did and you know um, we were fortunate because it's a pretty large site that we were able to build a linear park that I think is a huge benefit to the neighborhood and it's you know young and eggs extremely dense so you know all that stands to Today and when there's integration with uh, the underground garage and and, and things of that nature, but um, you know, it's it's an old school building that has that beautiful um, uh, lobby and you know the frontage make it a really uh, wonderful place to, in my opinion, to to reside and and it and it integrates well with the community and the two buildings seem to work. To, uh, well together at this point. I mean, it's a prototypical deal that we would love to do again if, in my mind, you know, super cautious, super concerned if the numbers worked, if the market was a little stronger than, you know, down 74%. Um, <laughs> I've, had, I've had developers uh, reach out on a couple other de- uh, sites we have in the city uh, with the same concept in, in mind, maybe a little slightly different depending on the, um, on the site and the configuration. A lot of these buildings were tower in the park You know, so you've got a four-acre site and a building right smack in the middle, which probably should be coming down, right? But um, it's—I doubt it's economically feasible. Certainly, very disruptive. So. But uh, I work with them again in a heartbeat, and, and they're very professional. Uh, to me, they're they're amongst a very small pool of or handful of de- of uh, quality developers that 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 you know have the experience, the capital, um, and they're energized to do it. Um, you know, there's obviously uh, probably hundreds of developers in, in the Resi space in Toronto, but uh, they're they're one of the few that I would consider partnering with.
1: Yeah, there. Uh, yeah, I had a had a conversation with a. Uh, with a journalist that Tends to lean a little bit left, uh, and uh, he's been, you know, active on Twitter, and, and sometimes he's, he's, you know, questions the motives of developers, right? And I, I tried to la- lay out to him, there's, you know, several tiers of developers, right? There's the, there's the top developers who have, you know, huge staff. They really have to be launching projects every single year. Uh, they're cat, you know, they're they're going to the schedule A banks to get <laughs> lending and, uh, and preferred rates, and uh, and they're the ones and taken taken out to, to steak restaurants, and then there's the kind of the second tier that do you know one, one deal every two three years, and then there's just uh, the you know this a pyramid, and at the bottom there's just a bunch uh, like a huge amount of developers that are not cap you know have a lot of capital and they're 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 searching everywhere to find it, and 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 their pro formas are extremely tight, right? And those are the ones that. All these little small issues uh, determine if the project is viable or not, right? And uh, and when they, you know, when people question, oh, you know, um, these you know these developers are making so much profit. I saw Peter Gilgan driving a Porsche, right? And it's like. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a small group at the top of the pyramid sure. that's 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 doing really really well. But if you want more supply, you need those guys at the bottom of the triangle to be working because they're the ones that're going to do a seven story building in the off transit in Scarborough, and they're going to do the twenty story building, you know, uh, right up abutting the 401 in North Etobicoke. Where we need those those guys active, and we need to lower the costs to make more projects viable. Not Oh, that's just going to make Madammy more money, or that's just going to make Tridel more money. So it's just this, this huge. You know, it's it's just so, so many ignorant people just don't understand that the business, right? And just want to hate developers <laughs> so badly. Yeah, so. It's, it's
0: a culture of envy. There's no question. And, you know, I mean, you can be like Gilgan too, if you work as hard as he does and take the risks he does and, uh, and are smart as he is. I mean, it's, it's not complicated in my mind, uh, the success that developers and investors I know have achieved uh there's no magic and there's no shortcut. And and the, I think the unique thing about real estate is is it you you will not get rich overnight, but you know if you play if you do it properly you can do very well over you know a career or you know a, a, certainly a cycle. Um, in development to me is 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 very. Um, it's aligned with real estate investing, but, but, you know, it's similar, but it's, it's such a different animal and it's, it's manufacturing, almost manufacturing homes. And, you know, and, and, and the madamies of the world to me, the the city should, should be more grateful or the, or the government, uh, for what they, companies like that do, um, for the communities. I mean, they're building the communities, which clearly today is, is, you know, is, uh, as I read in, in crisis. So, you know, make it, make it easier and, and embrace them. Um, I, I think, I think people have you know very much a recency bias. Uh, it's 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 human nature. But and then and then the, the twitters of the world, I call them the lots. You know, live on twitters. You know, people like that. <laughs> <laughs> they they, they um, accelerate or or um, you know um, amplify the recency bias. So every Christ, every little uh, issue that's popping up is ex- exponentially more serious or important because it's it's amplified in social media. And you know you got to. Take a step back and say, okay, what's really going on here? And again, the, the housing crisis—no uh, question, there's a shortage of housing now. But again, I look back through COVID, like I, I couldn't keep my apartments full, and and again, uh, it was frightening because um, you know, on one end, it's. At people leaving on the other end, uh, rumblings that uh, politicians telling tenants you don't have to pay, and it certainly happened in New York and in places in America where you know Biden said health emergency tenants don't have to pay. So it's one thing I can I could take it if the place is empty. That's my business. I got to keep it full. But if the person's living there and the building's in good condition and I'm not interrupting them, then why can't why shouldn't they pay? I mean I, I'm not a charity. Yeah. So anyway, obviously that's that's normalized, and I think is a pendulum in 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 everything uh certainly in business so it, it'll swing back to the middle the the rate of rent increases will absolutely moderate and you know and, and again in my business it's it's all you know it, we're all my tenants are protected so they can stay as long as they want and they're gonna really, really they're they're benefiting uh tremendously by by the rent protection right um obviously not in new buildings so but but, but, back, but back to your point, yeah, I mean, you know, small, medium-sized developers, it's hard. It's very capital-intensive. You know, my experience with it, uh, you know, I guess firsthand and then in other partnerships I've, I've had or investments I've had, it's very capital-intensive. If something goes wrong, someone's got to write a big check. And, uh, you know, so, so that's just the nature of the beast. Um, I, I think absolutely the city should be encouraging it and, and, and the mid rise, um, b- built form as, you know, as we see along here is beautiful. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I, I have a friend who was a very successful mid rise builder and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, I think it's, uh, it's more challenging just, just the nature. And that's why people go for the super talls. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Any question? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, he, he, you did, uh, say something I thought was interesting in, uh, an article I was reading. He said that, uh, um, small deals almost uh, often take as much, uh, much time as big deals. So, um, do you have any, you know, let's tell us, do you have any big deals on the go? Anything, uh, in the pipeline that you wanted to talk about?
0: Not on the development side. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, f- a few, uh, things that come out of nowhere on the investment side that I'm looking at. I just finished, uh, Uh, acquiring a couple buildings in L.A. with a partner, and that was pretty cool. Uh, And hopefully uh, it's a partnership that we'll be able to expand. A little counter-cyclical for us. you know, we, again, uh, we're not the um, hands-on operator, but we're, you know, a full partner in, in that deal and with a partner that we have other assets with. And, you know, I look at L.A., similar to New York, that have been beaten down a bit, and I, but I still see a world city, you know, an alpha city, um, to the extent that, you know, if you're, if you're going to have any confidence in, in the future of America, um, you know, all things being equal, politics and costs, et cetera, why wouldn't you not want to live in Los Angeles, uh, especially the better parts? You know, one of the buildings is in Hollywood. I mean, so you got a good operator there. Um, I I feel that that over time they can do really well. Uh, And and what you have is a beaten down market because, you know, they've got a lot of similar issues to us but but maybe more – uh, intense, you know, with homelessness and, and, and other issues. And the politics are, are in my mind, insane in <laughs> the regulations, et cetera. But, you know, you've got positive leverage on assets, which uh, going in, so I can buy a building and borrow uh, below the cost of, of the yield on the building, which is not the case in Toronto. Um, it's sort, it's not the case in Florida either, where, I've, where I did a deal and where I'm looking. Uh, you're buying, as my dad always says, futures. In LA, you're buying present and hopefully uh, a positive future, optimistic um you know if you can handle uh, a, a slightly bumpy ride and you know I, I think that's interesting um so you know that's been our our focus a little bit to to diversify out of uh, toronto um you know as i said alex at the beginning you know multi-res uh i do i do think it, it is incredibly stable and um you know in fact um we were looking at potentially exiting an asset that we never would have thought of and we were um, sort of running the numbers uh, because we kind of got an interesting offer on it and and, uh, you know, running the numbers, okay, after tax, how, you know, how am I doing with this and what am I going to do with the money? And I compare it to return on a risk-free government bond, right? Obviously, that's what you do. And then you think, all right, well, is, is owning and managing an apartment building the same as, as a government bond? It, it's a hell of a lot more work for, for me and my staff, right? But it, it, it comes, in many respects, it's easier. I don't know, like the tax is better and I don't really see a risk. I see, you know, the risk uh, you you talk about um, uh, earlier, Ben, about how I can predict my cash flows? Um, well, you know, month to month. I mean, because we do our capex projections at the beginning of the year, so it's really just any major repair that comes up that I'm going to unexpectedly see. And with the market tight, you know, uh, as long as you keep the bad de- bad debts in uh, in check, uh, I got amazing staff uh, all around to to lease up the buildings, so I I can do that, right? Uh, now, obviously, the you know, so you can smooth out your your capex, which which. By the way, is is very intense in these older buildings, but at least you can manage it right. So, um, you know, I I, th- I think in in that respect, uh, it, and again, it's I'm in a unique situation because I've I've seen a lot of deals, outs, either outside real estate or things that I'm less comfortable with, and and I'm sure they're terrific, especially private equity. You know, oh look at this, I can make a twenty percent IRR. But I'm not doing anything, you know. I'm writing a check, and and every month I'm, you know, crossing my fingers (laughs) that the guy's doing what he's supposed to. Yeah. And he probably will, but I don't really understand it always. And you know, although it's good diversification to me, the apartments at least, um, you know, subject to harsh regulations that, again, um, I find the the climate is 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 pretty scary out there from politicians. Subject to the to those regulations, uh, tightening things up. uh, I think it's pretty steady. Maybe one
2: last sort of physical question about the portfolio. Have you found success through initiatives around sort of reducing op costs given the grossly structure of probably a lot of your buildings whereby you're going and retrofitting, you know, a lot of the energy consumption or or sort of expense consumption light items with to just immediately drive NOI for you?
0: We did sub metering years ago. I, I'm going to say 15 plus years ago um, on our dime just for, for that reason, um, you know, thinking that, that we can, um, you know, get get tenants, we paid for the equipment, I'm saying, uh, you know, we can offload that cost. And, and, and obviously, it subsequently became, uh, we didn't want to be the pioneer, because we didn't want to be the only building on the street where tenants were paying hydro. But thank God, it became an accepted thing. Because let's face it, if the tenants paying, they're using less electricity. Uh, today, you know, it's much more difficult in in our housing stock to, to uh, you know, which is generally sort of the 1960s vintage, but we have some newer stuff um, to submeter energy. And uh, sorry, it's um, uh, a submeter heat, and you know we've been exploring a, a various um, op, you know various possibilities and concepts to to mitigate because the, the, the heating costs have escalated tremendously it's, it's a combination of, of well consumption you can't do much about, but maybe aging equipment efficiencies and, and the carbon tax is just out of control, uh, which is just quizzical to me because I don't see what benefit it's really causing. Me uh, and the environment when they're just charging extremely high carbon tax on on my heat bill. When at the end of the day the tenants aren't going to reduce their consumption. So so and 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 I can't afford to upgrade to new equipment because it's it's incredibly high costs and the returns very low. So what are you doing? I mean the only way I can reduce the energy the 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 heat usage the gas usage in the building is to turn down the heat in the winter. Okay, no <laughs> one wants that. So. You know that that's a challenge, but I you know there's a couple interesting concepts out there, but most of it's low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of water conservation things I'm hearing about. Um, um, you, you know ways to uh, sensors are, are a big one, um, and uh, I've seen them in action. That's pretty cool. You can avoid a leak and that sort of thing. Um, and and again, uh, there was sort of like low-flow w- water toilets for a while, but eventually they break. And you know tenants don't <laughs> like them, and you know so th- those are things that are again low hanging fruit. But ultimately, if you know it's, it comes down to switching to to electricity uh, from natural gas is very very costly, and uh, I don't think any landlord in, in our position would would see it differently.
1: Yeah, um, I mean there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways we could go. There's a lot of topics obviously that get brought up a lot in the in the rental space, you know tearing down 25-story buildings to do development. There's there's talk about vacancy control coming in, you know, not being able to, to, to raise raise rents between tenants. Uh, there's talk about rent evictions. You know, I mean, you can talk about it. I'll, I'll leave any of that stuff up to you. But when, when your tenant turns over are you doing more than just a paint job like how much how much money are you sinking into some of these uh, some of these units these days sure it's
0: extensive um, and and now we're looking in 2023 you know the turnovers, Really, it's like 10 to 15% from, you know, close to 2025 historically. Uh, So it's it's very, very low. People aren't moving because, you know, from many respects, they have nowhere to go. Uh, When we do get an empty unit um, or turnover, yeah, we do extensive full renovations, kitchens, bathrooms, flooring, lighting, you know, um, new appliances that are more energy efficient, all those things, uh, painting, and it costs a fortune. Uh, but we've got really good trades we work with. We do a real quick turnaround and we get nice lifts on that that bring it, you know, to market. Um, I, you know, a, a lot of the and maybe I consume um, a little too much of the media, but it's my industry. I like to keep current, but it's it's off in many respects. The the buzz you hear about, um, you know, the average rent. So they talk about the average rent being $3,000 for one bedroom. I mean, that, that's a, a nice new condo that is not the typical housing stock. Yeah. It, um, you know, my numbers may be a little off. Off, but I think there are about 450,000-ish, um, you know, typical rental units of which you know we, we own some. Um, that's our main business in, in the GTA, I think, not Toronto, not the city. And you know, the condo market is is a small fraction that they're rented out. It's is it 125, 150,000? So so typically, when units turn over, they're nowhere near that 3,000. The, the average in place rent for a tenant in city of Toronto is 1,800 bucks. I'm not suggesting that it's not hard for the average person to, you know, to pay that, but that's the number, right? And now when it turns over, you know, a two-bedroom is probably 24, 25-ish. Again, it's a big number, but it's not what you hear. Yep. Um, so you know, we capitalize on the turnover, sure, because A, to be honest, if the tenant's been there a long time, I can't even rent it at the old rent unless I fix it up. You know, so it's a question of what you know. What's your return on your cost and and the time and, and involved in it, and you know, and you attract a better tenant, uh, generally speaking. Um, but as, as far as, you know, hot topics, uh, vacancy, decontrol, vacancy control, rent control. I mean, you know, New York City has something along those lines. And, uh, you know, that's a, it'll be provincial if, if, if anyone dares to suggest it. But we've seen that, that movie here and, and it ends in disaster. What, what you end up with in that scenario is, is if my elevators, if I have three elevators and one of them breaks, I'm not fixing it. If, if I can't, you know, if I can't, if I can't at least capture some market rent on turnover, what's my incentive? What's my incentive to make anything but emergency repairs? And who suffers? The tenants suffer that are there. Everyone suffers, so I, I think any politician, you know, listening or, or uh, putting it out in the ether, I mean, that's suicide, and and that's painful for everyone. Of course, it's painful for us, but it's painful for tenants as well. So that would be ridiculous. I, what I wouldn't be shocked to see is rent control, the same way we have rent control on newer apartment buildings that are being constructed now, and that would deter people from building them, if, if, as if they don't have enough to deter them, the economic <laughs> yeah. reasons, but. You know, when you see the people screaming, it's three thousand bucks a month for a one. Okay, well, uh, if it's under rent control, then it's three thousand now, and it's you know two percent more next year, not ten percent. So. Um, I you know listen I, I looked up again with the, the stats there's what 15,000 new condos available for sale I don't I think that means what buildings that are finished and unoccupied I think
1: no 15,000 is just all the new condos so it could be started pre-construction uh, it's, it's launched three days ago oh, versus okay. Completed in occupied, yeah. The number of standing inventory units yes. of new condos is like less than 500 units. Oh, because wow. most of these buildings sell out, right? Okay, and uh, and the most of them are coming to completion at like 98 percent sold, right? But so, people
0: are closing though. Yeah,
1: people are closing. Are. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's obviously the fundamental issue moving forward, right? right? Is is will we have issues closing? Because I mean prices have gone up so much that we never you know never had any of those issues, but obviously the 2020 kind of that 2021 to early 2022 period a lot of markets went up 20 25 30 sure. percent, right and now you know it's hard to it's hard to to do to mark-to-market the new condo market because very few developers ever lower their pricing. Sure, right. just they, go, more they go, throw more Yeah. Okay. You get some blinds. You get some hardwood. You get some uh, discounts and closing costs, cash back. You know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get a new car. You get a Vespa. You get a <laughs>
2: you know um, a guaranteed rent or whatever. Right. Keep so pay your condo fees for three years. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> it's always hard. It's harder. going to be interesting to see though this lump in the deliveries when the lag in sales that's happening over the last year, maybe eight months to a year for sure, uh, when those deliveries don't come online in three, four, or five years, yeah. how that impacts their already tight rental market, right? At that time, obviously, there's a lot of unforeseeable things macroeconomically that could be going on in the future, but just inherently, you realize like this interest rate bump, which has driven away investor demand and caused some chaos in closings for people that are taking deliveries based on just appraisals not being where they need to be, uh, that sort of dip in demand now is going to cause an impact like in the future from supply crunch. From a supply standpoint. That's the weirdest thing about our market is it's so lagged
1: between supply and demand delivery, right? So in You know, 2011 was like a record year for new condos at the time. I think it was 27,000 or 28,000 sales. And then, so that, all those buildings came to completion around 2015, all right, Uh, late 2014, early 2015. So we actually saw 2015 was, you know, flat resale condo prices, flat rents. But then there was this 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 mania that happened in the second half of 2012 and into 2013 and 20 and, and early 2014, where the media, back when there was newspapers, went gung ho on oversupplied, too many investors, too many foreign investors. You know, it's going to be sure. oversupplied, There's way too many condos, even though I kept saying, "Hey, the amount of low rise housing is way down, right? So the total amount of housing that we're delivering is still the same." Mm-hmm. And These are smaller units, so the square footage is down. The number of bedrooms is down, and now you know, you're talking your book, Ben, you're talking your book. Right. And I'm like, no, I'm talking what's right. And it turned out to be correct. So then fast forward to 2016 and and then ultimately 2017, we didn't have anywhere near the amount of supply that we had. And then what happened in 2017, we had pricing going through the roof, bubble, fair housing plan coming in, you know, more rent control came in. Right. So it was all a reaction to not building enough supply and there being this over sensitivity in the media to too much supply and stuff like that going back five years right so it's 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 kind of amazing how the media can play an impact ultimately play a a major impact on uh on the on the housing market right yeah Yeah. like rent control came in because of one person got their unit increased by a thousand dollars a month right and i'm just like yeah maybe they were a dick right and the landlord was just like yeah i gotta get rid of this person
0: (laughs) It's right? react, everything's reactionary. So. And it's politically, you know, it's it's uh, dry tinder for politicians to jump on that and seize it and say, oh, my God, we got to now throw these protections in place. But but I, m- my understanding was there was about 30,000 units to be finished this year, 2023. And you're saying that, that the ones that, that finished and delivered are, are rel- relatively smooth closings? I mean, yeah, I, I mean that's, that's I mean, good to know. I didn't know y- that. Y-
1: you hear some rumblings here and there, but people's appraisals not coming back. But I think there's enough of, um, opportunistic investors out there, right? That they hear, Oh my God, this guy's not going to close. Okay. Well, you know, I'll do a little deal with you, right? Like I'll, I'll take your assignment, but you're going to sell it to me at what you bought it for. So you won't get sued by the developer and you right. won't lose your deposit. So, and as of now, those, those people looking to assign are like, no, <laughs> you know, that it's still worth a little bit more than what I paid for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we're, we're going through that. I don't think 2023 is going to be a pain point and, and any projections on completions are always significantly lower sure uh, as we know right, they're slow. as we know uh construction is always delayed <laughs> we- so yeah it should be yeah, I think the years to worry about is probably the second half of 2024 when we we see these 2021 buildings actually come to completion because that's when the massive kind of bubble happened in the market right the second half of 2021 right. into early 2022 so we've got a kind of a a decent buffer now that hopefully interest rates go back down by the end of 2024 or early 2025 that'll allow some of these uh, people to be able to carry these units moving forward so
0: so yeah so a lot of you're seeing a lot of the um the the purchasers that are closing now that they, they have a lower cost point and even even with the higher cost of money they're doing okay.
1: I yeah, guess. yeah I think they'll do okay. I mean, so I, I
0: as you know as a owner of buildings as opposed to owner of units, although you know we do have some condo units, but it's it's overwhelmingly just you know rental stock housing buildings. Um, it never made sense to me how anyone, you know, even when prices were you know way below a thousand a foot could, could justify as an investment because you weren't getting paid cash flow. Yeah. And I I, I always thought in those days it was well. I'm not making you know they're fooling themselves. They're either putting a bit, you know more equity in so that it does cash flow, or they're saying well I'm breaking even or maybe not totally but convincing themselves. Yeah. But they could manage it. Right now it's like the typical deal is losing two three thousand dollars a month or what <laughs> I don't know. I'm making up numbers but dramatic. And it's like, well, wait a 2nd like I'm not going to absorb three, you know, twenty-five thousand dollars a year, hoping it goes up ten percent a year when when the market's been flat for two years. So, yeah. But you know, th- those aren't per se issues that I'm I'm dealing with right now. But it does make me extremely cautious to, you know, again as a private guy to to spend money on the soft cost to start a project because you know, wh- you know, as I've said to partners, you know, once you start, you have to keep moving ahead or you'll never recover what you have into it. There's sunk costs. Any real estate development, but you know, you really can't pause and pivot very easily. Um, certainly, once you've got your approvals, you know, impacts all over you. So, you know, those those are major factors. In fact, we we have a couple sites that we we zone that I know I can add intensification today, and and I'm I'm just not I don't feel comfortable. Again, the cost to construct, uh, you know, the the stability of the market doesn't doesn't make me feel good. I mean, uh, you know, certainly through COVID and in that that crazy period, twenty twenty one really, I guess twenty twenty two. What I was hearing about the cost going through the roof i'm thinking all right so if i'm a developer especially um, where my office is young and egg um you know it's it's like they're building a new city right and yeah. you know i feel like we were a pioneer with our project but you know all those streets Roehampton and broadway primarily um on erskine i think maybe uh something some things are coming uh you know they're all under construction at the exact same time and i'm looking a lot of these were pre-sold in what 2018 19 so pick what the numbers were there I mean, they couldn't have fixed their costs that much uh, to to that extent that through COVID, they must have just skyrocketed. I mean, the labor shortage at the very least, right, in supply chain. So you pre-sold in those days. And now, perfect storm, we're at the other end of the market. The prices typically had gone up. So through your sales cycle towards the end, you'd be getting a lift. Are you now? You know, you look at, yeah. as you say, the resales. So I track on Erskine a lot, the resales, and they're steady. Like I'm, I'm happy to see units selling there, turning yeah. over pretty quick, but I don't feel like they're going up. So. Yeah,
1: I yeah. know the resale market has definitely come down. Uh, it seems like there's some positive momentum over the last few months. I think people just wanted to know that interest rates weren't going to continue to go up. Right? Sure. Well, and they were like, okay, well, we're not going to buy if like three months from now, it's now going to cost us, you know, it's not going to be 9% or something crazy like that, right? So now that it's somewhat sta- stabilized, it seemed like there's There's a little bit more demand, but the supply is still not coming on because people have in their mind the 2022 price. Right. Right, Exactly. Oh, my neighbor sold for one point eight five and my house is the same. So I'm not going to sell for that. Well, that's not the market anymore. Right. That was a a blip. Right. So, yeah. So it's good to see that we're not seeing a massive. You know, uh, amount of people defaulting on their on their properties, like there was in the United States, and ghost neighborhoods and, and things along those lines, right? That uh, that the people on Twitter obviously predicted uh, several times over the last uh, fifteen years. So there's no question.
0: Well, it, it's the Canadian mentality, and you know, having lived in the states, uh, in in Los Angeles uh, as well as as New York, and just seeing how Canadians behave. I mean, we're you know to, not to generalize too much, but you know, I feel like we're much more moderate and, and uh, conservative in general about our um, outlook on life and, and, and lifestyles. Um, you know, you, you just, like, as I was saying, I was in Miami on the weekend, like just the, the amount of... Uh, of, of money throwing around, thrown around there compared to to what I hear about and see here is, is another level, right? So <laughs> here people are you know they're pretty safe they they they, they you know they they protect the fortress, and, and and you know and I and I should say this more I you know I don't think I, I say it enough but you know Toronto is a special place and 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 you know it's a place where where you've got a very stable rule of law. Um, you know, not withstanding my uh, disdain for the, the, the federal government and the leaders to, to, you know, Toronto, you've got a rule of law, you've got a growing metropolis, you've got um, you know, room to spread out, I, in my opinion gorgeous neighborhoods um, you know, and, and a diverse workforce di- diverse economy uh, heavy in, in, in what, you know, we've got academia we've got science, we've got finance we've got some entertainment um, you know, every sports team I mean, it, it, there's a lot there's a lot going on in Toronto and you know, it it, it may um, feel different from a, an exotic perspective for other large cities around the world or important cities, but I think it's very important and continue to be. And you know, we, we have to work harder to safeguard that as Canadians, I think, again, through government to give that impression that, hey, we're open for business, because we rely, I think we rely way too much on the oligopolistic nature of, of our economy, uh, whether it's grocery or telecom or finance. Uh, to a large extent, as you said, in real estate, there's a lot of big players. We have- we we have to embrace uh, entrepreneurship and creativity way more than we do i feel like we shun it you know anyone that comes out with an interesting business idea or proposal i feel like the the government's just throwing roadblocks on them yeah. you know they've got other priorities that are they're really just just uh, playing politics
1: well, before we move on to our famous rapid fire, Alex, do you have uh, anything that you want to promote? You want to throw out there with the uh, the many businesses that you're, you're 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 involved in?
2: No, Ben, I'm not going to make it a commercial about me. I mean, we've got <laughs> IQ offices, which is shared office and co-working. If you're looking to build a laneway house or or a garden suite in the city, we've got Lanescape, which is now doing construction as well as the design and entitlements. And then, if you want to take a golf vacation, come out to Black Bear Ridge, just north of Prince Edward County in Belleville. We've got a 27-hole golf course and uh, resort development ongoing out there. So oh, appreciate nice. the nice. the window. Well, I do have a question for you. Like most
1: people building the laneways, are they using them for moving a relative
2: or something like that? Or are they just straight renting them out? It's a pretty diverse use case um, scenario. So we've we've had over 100 uh, permits issued and we've got something like 40 plus active projects. A lot of them are investors who are just looking to intensify their site and capitalize on the rental income, but a number are aging in place. So a parent lived in the front house, kids move into the former front house, parent moves into the back house, um, or vice versa. Sometimes it's, um, you know, nannies or support service people for the primary residence there's a whole host of uses sometimes it's just a a simple sort of ancillary space extension of your house whether it's a home office or you know a a man or lady cave as (laughs) as you have it Um, so there's a lot of different diverse use cases and the beauty is it's an as of right form which is pretty straightforward it's a lot configuration exercise where you look at what your existing conditions are if there's any obstacles like trees or or other considerations and then you uh, you kind of have a clear sense of what's possible and we're really working hard to try to refine it in a way that gets more efficiency to the end user and and ultimately reduces the price point on making these things a reality because it is expensive um, on a price per foot but oftentimes when you look at it with the land already embedded it's similar to your infill certain sort of propositions on your investments, right? Like you can, you can justify, uh, an investment a lot more easily when you already have the land.
0: Got the sunk cost. Yeah. And listen, and, and don't be afraid, all you NIMBYs out there. I mean, you know, I, I can point to one area that has a lot of of uh, duplexes and triplexes and coach houses and all that, that I think most of you would agree would work really well. It's called Rosedale, you know, and uh, <laughs> there are not too many areas in Toronto that are as nice as Rosedale and look how well it seems to be integrated. So it can work really well and and I think, it, you know, incrementally will make a difference and hopefully, uh, you, you know, the key is to maintain The streetscape, maintain the character of of these of these mature neighborhoods, but I I think I think uh, I think it'll be a real positive addition to Toronto.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to see what happens with the you know the multiplex and and uh, 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 changes. Uh, I'm an urbanite, right? Like if I found the right site, you know, I might do something where you know you tore down a bungalow and and I built you know 2,500 square foot for myself and at, at the bottom and then did, you know, three units above to, to, to rent out. I mean, I would totally do something like that. And I think that may be the form that gets taken a lot, that that an end user uses it, right? And and, and rents out the rest of it as opposed to a sure. straight investment play where you're buying uh, million dollars bungalow and trying to and trying to make the numbers work on on, on, (laughs) our double land transfer tax and uh yeah our city trying to squeeze everything out of it but uh but we've held you long enough. Let's 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 jump into the uh, into the to rapid fire. So we'll go back and forth reading the questions mm-hmm. and uh, and see where you come out. So, try you know, five, ten words maximum. You can say yes or no, but, you know, passing. And we have a few guests that tried to pass on I these questions. But uh, all right. So I'll, I'll start. Do you still need balconies to lease units in 2023? No. One more, I lived I in New
0: York. There were no balconies anywhere. No.
1: <laughs> okay. How about any book or podcast recommendations?
0: I love the all in podcast <laughs> aside from this one, but that one really, um, you know, it, it, hits it for me because I'm the same age as most of those guys. And, and I really admire what they've achieved. And I think I have the same, uh, political leanings as well. So
1: <laughs> whenever that comes up, I listen to it. Yeah. I listen yeah. to like every episode. Fantastic podcast morning or evening guy.
0: Evening. Evening. Okay,
1: okay. Uh, what uh, amenities uh, in your building get, the, get used the most and what get used the least?
0: When we have um, fitness centers, people love them. Um, I am proud to say that my building at 66 Broadway is the nicest outdoor pool in Toronto. <laughs> nice. So rent with us and you'll get to check it out.
2: <laughs>
0: this has got to be a Ben
2: question. Who makes better movies, Schwarzenegger or Stallone?
0: Ty. Ty.
1: Um, Okay, we've talked about there being Oh, I guess we didn't talk about that But uh, a landlord registry Should there be a tenant registry?
0: No, I mean there's Equifax, credit checks You know, I, I think if you're a prudent and diligent landlord you can find out who your tenants are a lot of the stories i've been reading don't make a lot of sense to me uh i mean maybe it's because i have exceptional staff but um it's it's not that hard to find out who's who's trying to pull a fast one on you
2: yeah are you comfortable sharing a few of the smartest real estate minds in toronto in your eye
0: my father for sure without question um i mean the obvious right mitch goldhar i mean who's brighter than him um you know, and in, in, in who's more successful, right? Um, that that name easily comes to mind. Um, you know, and uh, after that, you know, it's uh, it's a crowded field. I think. A lot of talent in the city for oh, sure. yeah. Um, a Toronto
1: developer was recently accused of fraudulent activity. Do you think this is common or an isolated case?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure which one. Um, I I think it's as common as it is in any, uh, competitive high stakes business, uh, certainly not unique to real estate. And, you know, when there's opportunities, people that are unscrupulous will, will grab at it. But unfortunately,
2: uh, this is again a Ben question, I think. But should a 24 year old engineering graduate expect to be able to afford a normal house? In quotation. <laughs> so, Ben, you have to elaborate on what normal I house means. It sounds sure, like a
0: Twitter I'm uh, sure you saw that. You
2: didn't see that on Twitter? Th- oh. it sa- yeah, it sound, uh, yes.
0: resonates.
1: Some, yeah, some person from Reddit complained that they did everything right. They got an engineering degree. They're making $100,000 a year and they can't afford a normal house. I now I was like, I'm not up uh, on my Twitter. Uh, I'm like, what? What is chat? a normal house? So, what do you, what do you think? Should a 24 year old be able to afford? Uh, to buy a house in certainly in canada
0: um uh, you know a quick story when i moved to new york again you know law school and i guess uh i was uh, i had residency when i was when i was in law school when i was looking for apartments you know it was shocking you know for 300 feet it would be 1500 bucks in you know 1997 or whatever and the way people were living in these tiny accommodations that's new york yeah right i mean i'm not saying that that's right but you know i don't i don't Subscribe so much to the notion of affordable. I subscribe to, you know, expensive or cheap. Toronto Choice. is an expensive city. Uh, Canada seems to be a growingly expensive country, and it, you know it's going to create challenges. You can't find labor. Uh, people can't find accommodations, and I think ultimately that creates inflation and wage inflation. If you ask me, and you know, all your employers out there pay your staff more. I mean, so that they can find <laughs> places to live. So. Yeah, I mean, is it more challenging to find a traditional home in the GTA now than, than when exactly? Uh, you <laughs> Again, know, it's all I, relative, I, I like we talked 70s, about earlier. So. Yeah.
2: You know, like it's, it's, a, it's a function of relativity, and they've certainly seen things outstrip incomes as the main sort of metric that people focus on. Uh, but I think it's it ignores a lot of the other factors that are at play in the overall market, like immigration. And it's, built, it's
1: built out. We've built out a lot of the major cities, and then we've got a green belt. So there's only so much land to go around. So if we're going to increase the population, there's going to be less availability of houses. It's just the way it is. We We've chose the environment over more. I hate to use the word sprawl because I've, a lot of my clients are in that type of business, but we've 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 decided that we were in, we we've chose environmentalism over. Big houses in the suburbs, right? We've made that choice, and That's I think the
0: nature. Yeah, yeah, so. we've got. I was saying to a friend. We were talking about, he, he was comparing New York to Toronto, which I think is sort of silly. I don't do it typically. But I said, well, New York's an island, okay? And he goes, well, Toronto's become an island because you got the lake and then a green belt around it. Yeah. And I said, you know, that's that's a brilliant observation. And, you know, and, and it's really, to, to the largest extent to me, it's the cost structure of constructing anything new that, that makes it so expensive. And that resonates from, you know, the sticker price of, of uh, a, a new home or condo or, or, or the rent. And, and I should add this, though, again, back to the strength of Toronto. Uh, a term that I invented as well. There's no such thing as a speculative renter. If if I'm renting a unit, it's what the market tells me I can get. I don't set the price, the market does. And that person, he, if he's paying me every month, he can afford it somehow. I, it's taking more of his paycheck. I get it. Maybe he's got a roommate. Maybe, maybe you know, people are, are huddling together more, but, you know, they're, they're not doing it hoping it's going to go up in value. So, you know, it speaks to the strength of the city. Now, you know, it doesn't mean we can't do more to alleviate the pressures. And yeah, they say in in, uh, housing economics, I think a healthy rental market is running at what, 5% vacancy. So we're certainly not there if that's the goal. Um, You know, how do we achieve it? Well, we covered some of that. Yeah.
1: Okay. Last one. So let's just assume that rent control isn't going away. What is a fair rate that prevents rent gouging but allows landlords to make a respectable
0: return on investment. Thank you for asking that. That's an easy one, the cost of inflation, right? Which was seven and a half this year, and we were given two and a half. Makes no sense. Why? It's political.
1: <laughs> Perfect way to, to end it, Jason. That that was great. We covered a lot of topics. Uh, uh, a little bit different guest than our than our typical uh, you know residential high rise condo developer. So it's uh, great to uh, to touch on a lot of those topics. Thank you, uh, Alex, for joining us today. If someone wants to connect with you, I know that you're you've been a little bit more active on Twitter than uh, than you were before. Yeah, how do how do people connect with you if they wanna they wanna? Uh, um, so you first? know,
0: through our website and you know, general in- inquiries at BowProperties.com, or you can find me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, just uh, quietly uh, observing for the most part. But you know, I I, I really I've ever since Elon Musk bought Twitter, I've I've renewed my my interest in it because uh, I support the uh, openness that he's the open forum that he seems to be cultivating there so it's important to me to have that sort of freedom of expression in this country that seems to be uh lacking a little bit
1: <laughs> perfect cool. all right thank you thanks a lot
0: thanks, thanks.